Welcome to the podcast. Most people don't, but you do. Stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't. We're a motivational storytelling and sales training company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. Today's guest is another extraordinary legend in the world of hospitality and I believe in the world of humanity. I want to read a little bit about his background before we start with the questions in the podcast interview. But today's guest is Mr. Jerry Inzarello, CEO of Daria Gate Development Authority in Saudi. He is so involved with helping to expand uh, its tourism and building cities and building communities in Riyadh. He is the vice chairman and former CEO of Forbes Travel Guide, past president of IMG Artist, corporate hotelier of the world nominee for 2021, past president of Kirzner, helping to establish one and only in Atlantis, as well as so many other things. The reason why I am so honored to be able to have Jerry do this podcast is when we talk about people that do, people that go above and beyond. If we look at his volunteer experience, he donates not only his time, his resources, his expertise, his money to some amazing organizations. Andre Agassi Foundation, uh, Nelson Mandela's Children's Fund, Artists for a New South Africa, and these are just a few. So without, uh, let me stop talking and introduce Mr. Jerry Inzarello. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Brad. It's a great honor to be with you. Thank you for your long service to tourism, the industry. Thank you for always looking for the good in people. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, and I wanna start asking some questions. Now, this could obviously take hours and hours and hours, but what we are hoping to share with our approximately 20,000 listeners is what has allowed, uh, what, what has created, what has influenced, how have things in your life led to be the person that you are today. So I'm going to go back to somewhat of the beginnings, Jerry, if you can tell us a little bit about growing up and perhaps what were some of your major influences then? Well, you know, uh, I was uh, uh, born and raised in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and um, I come from a relatively poor family, good family, but a poor family. So, um, you know, it wasn't easy and a very difficult neighborhood. And there was more struggle than there was victory. Um, and I had a friend of mine who was three years older than I was. He was uh, 16, I was 13. And he took a job cleaning tables as a banquet busboy. And I said to him, can I get a job like that? Because all the money that I had, um, I made from running errands washing cars, shoveling snow, bagging groceries or delivering laundry. And because from a very early, early age, um, I just didn't have the heart to ask my parents, uh, even for 10 cents, even for ice cream, because they didn't have it. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I got into the hotel business at age 13. But that was like a dream come true, because now you're going to work, everybody's dressed up, in the catering department, the band is playing, it's beautiful food, people are on their best behavior, it's festivity. And then you say to yourself, wow, this is a major upgrade from what I have to deal with on a daily basis. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people were affectionate and, um, and uh, festive. And that was very appealing to me. Yeah. And Jerry, so growing up, brothers and sisters? Yeah, three brothers and a sister. I'm the second of five. Okay. And uh, close-knit family, but, but we had to be independent because we all started working very young. Yeah. And were um, both of your parents working when you were growing up as well? No, my mother in that generation, she's now 94 years old. God bless her. Wow. But she was the classic um, housewife and had to be because with a family of seven, um, you know, I was uh, only eight years old when we got a washing machine. Um, I think I was uh, almost eight when we got our first television. So for the family, she had to do all the washing uh, in the sink and then put it out on the clothesline, which is, uh, you know, not easy in New York City in the months of uh, January and February, where, you know, everything is frozen solid off the clothesline. So um, she had all to do just to raise a family. And uh, my father uh, worked 53 years in the same job, only retired uh, in his 80s. And uh, it was a, you know, a blue collar manual worker in a purchasing department of a bus company in Triborough Coach Queens. Wow. And uh, so, you know, they, um, they struggled and um, uh, they had, one had to raise the family, one had to provide for the family, but they did so, you know, they did so like many people of that generation. Yeah. And so it, and it certainly makes sense if you're involved and you grow up in a certain type of environment and all of a sudden someone else opens up the door to laughter festivities, as you would describe it. I'm sure it felt um, kind of glamorous, probably. Right. The, the, the hotel world and working as a busboy. Oh, absolutely. And you got paid. Yeah. How and you times can you, Well, I mean, you look at it this way. You got invited to a party every night. and You got paid for it. Now, you had to clean the tables, but it was still a party. But it was still a party. And how did your parents react when you, at 13 years old, got that position as working as a busboy? Well, uh, my parents were very proud, especially my father's Italian. That's where the name Incirillo comes from. But then um, uh, I was very close with my dad. And um, I went to him and said that I've got a job. And um, he said, I have to look into this. Uh, because it was at night. And in New York City in the 1960s, mm-hmm. late 1960s, they were, uh, still, there were child labor laws. You weren't allowed to work past 8 p.m. if you were under the age of 16. Um, so my father uh, asked one or two people. He was a very modest man. And they, they indicated that I was too young to take the job. Um, and I thought my father was saying to me, you can't do it because I was uh, very slight as a boy, still, still a little slight. But um, so I thought he was saying, you can't do it. And I said, I can do it. But he said, no, you're too young. So I said to him, well, then you have to we have to lie about my age and tell them that I'm older. And uh, it, this family doesn't lie. You know, we don't do that. You know, that's not what this family is about. So we had to go down to uh, family court in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Brooklyn on the subway. Mm -hmm. And um, in those days, the judges were in elevated um, booths above the family court. And my father was so nervous that um, he asked the judge to come out of the booth. And the judge was nice enough and did so. And I think my father explained our 
circumstances to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was nice enough to kind of scribble uh, my birthday. And instead of making the 1954 or four kind of look like a zero. Uh-huh. So if somebody, if somebody carded me, but you know, a roll call bank with bus boy in 1967 was the bottom of the food chain. And no one even cared as long as you were a warm body and you can get the dishes into the kitchen. So no one ever caught in me, but that day, uh, April 28th, um, I went from 13 to 17 and then I worked my first function on May 2nd, 1967. And I had a big day, it was a 12 hour shift. I got paid $15 and 90 cents in cash but I made a whole $2 in tips. So I, I came across with $17.90 and attended the party. And it was one of the best days of my life. Amazing. And then you can remember it like it's tomorrow, right? You know, and I, I listened to one of the, a different interview and you were talking about when I look into the mirror, maybe it was from your TED talk that you still see the 13 year old bus boy, but to know what your wages were, what your tip was and think about how significant that one bit of kindness, that act of kindness from the judge and also the passion and the support that you had from your, your father. Like if those two things didn't line up, we might not be talking right now. You could be in a totally different industry, right? Without a doubt. You know, I had a, I had a wonderful friend um, who was a legendary American state Supreme Court justice in the ninth district of Illinois. And um, his parents were immigrants. Uh, and they, they left uh, uh, they left the Ukraine um, to escape uh, Hitler. They were Jewish family. Mm-hmm. And uh, he became a prominent judge. And the mother named him after the American president, Abraham Lincoln. And they named him Abraham Lincoln Marovitz, Judge Abe, we called him Abe Marovitz. But his saying was, never forget to remember a kindness. Wow. And that's a great saying. And um, he was very dear to me. He was one of my mentors. And I, I like to perpetuate that because I think um, I think single acts of kindness are, are very contagious. Now, far be it for a Catholic Italian kid from uh, Brooklyn to quote the scriptures of the Holy Quran. But, you know, there's there's a there's two variations of uh, a scripture that says, may Allah accept all your good deeds and may Allah accept all your good intentions. Uh, we are we are a a derivative of our good deeds and our good intentions. And I think regardless of age or culture or theology, um, that golden rule principle uh, applies to this day. Oh, I agree. I agree. And did you get that sense of, of kindness from, from your parents as well? Like you had referenced Jerry, that you were a family that did not lie. You had, you had, seems like a very strong moral code. Were they also, despite perhaps growing up poor, as you just shared, were they still kind and giving to other people? Yeah, um, you know, they were both uh, extremely principled, um, very wonderful people. My father was very courageous, even though he had virtually no education. Um, My mother graduated high school, but very kind, very empathetic, um, worked at the church all the time. Um, you know, my father, you know, he had no margin of error. He had a family of seven. I mean, when my father retired in his 80s. He only made eight, $18,000 a year. 
So, you know, that's no margin of error. And that's the greatest generation and raised a family and served in the American military. He was a good citizen, very good to his word. You know, my father was old school. So if he shook your hand, that was a contract. Yeah. And my father, um, even though he was a, a modest and relatively shy man, my mother was more gregarious. But my father was always pleased, always thank you. Uh, God forbid, I have three brothers. Uh, my sister was the baby. Mm -hmm. But God forbid we were walking from church and we didn't acknowledge one of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother would correct us immediately. You will, you will address <laughs> and say hello to Mrs. Meyerberg and you will say hello to Mrs. Fleming. And so we, we, we always did. So regardless of income, um, we were always clean. We were always polite. Um, and these were very principled, lovely people. Yeah. And it sounds like that is that is the substance of who you are. You just have grown from that time, but you still have the same principles. How does your, if I may ask, how does your mother feel about your success, your accomplishments, and your continued kindness? Um, she's a she's a pretty extraordinary uh, girl, my mother. Um but she always shakes her head because she says every single time that boy gets settled, he will always upset it and go and do something else. I don't know where in the world he is now. I don't even know what he's doing. But boy, that boy never will be settled. He's always running somewhere and taking care of somebody, doing something and trying to spread the word of service and hospitality. Which is which is amazing. Is your mother still in the New York area? Yes, she's still in Brooklyn. She's okay. now at an assisted living facility at 94. My father made it to 93. Amazing. So, uh, amazing. Yeah, well, and, and that's why you have an awful lot more to do in your second half, right? <laughs> which I know you, you talk that's about. It. Well, well, great blessings to your mother in Brooklyn, for sure. Um, it, in a recent discussion, I think it was something that I read. Um, you were talking about your second act. So the first X number of years of your life, you were really, you know, leading, growing, creating things, building cities. And I know you're certainly still involved with that, um, with Daria. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But can you share a little bit about what your mission is now with regard to serving those that serve our industry? Because I just think it's brilliant and stunning and special. Yeah, you know, um, with ambition, especially when you have to get educated, you have to provide for your own families, you have to overcome your self-esteem challenges. Uh, does my work uh, define who I am as a personality or do I define who I am? You know, you'll have your triumphs and you're gonna have your obstacles. Along the path, you're gonna meet friends and you're gonna meet foes. This is difficult. Um, it's not, will the rain come? The rain is going to come. Embrace it because you will have growth from that rain, but still not fun when the rain comes. So you get to a point in your life where I am now, where there's nothing left to prove in terms of identity. Right. I know who I am and I've always given it my best. Now, so what happens is when you get to that point where you can exhale a little bit yeah then you're playing with what we call in the casino business you're playing with house money so then you can do things because you wish to do them 
or because they're noble and their pursuits or intentions. And then you can concentrate more on inspiring and serving than having to prove yourself and overcome uh, obstacles, which are all part of that first phase. Yeah, in, in I'm, I'm writing a newsletter article just actually moments earlier uh, before we jumped on this call about self-awareness. And, you know, studies are showing that the best leaders are self-aware. So it's not only knowing who you are, but knowing what you need to know, knowing what you don't know, and knowing what you need to say no to. So all of those things combined. When you were growing up through your career, was there a certain point where you said, you know what, I feel, I feel very confident with who I am. I know who I am. I like myself. Did that happen recently or was it 20 years ago? Can you kind of give us an idea? Well, I, I've always um, I've always loved serving. I always loved uh, the camaraderie and the affection of our industry. But um, I would think that I started understanding the separation between uh, vocation and uh, personal identity, mm -hmm. probably in my 30s. But then it took me into my 50s mm -hmm. to, to understand how to completely excel in both and separate them. And then uh, my divine daughter, uh, Helena, who's an only child, she'll be 15 August 3rd. When she came, that was really... Um, two umbilical cords. One is her, thank God. And the second one is that uh, all my work was then devoted in uh, you know, her honor and uh, to, to uh, make her proud as a father and make her proud as a parent. Um, and where I could see um, maybe some of my, um, my good work in her honor, uh, which, were, which was very liberating. Yeah, and in creating a legacy, for, for your daughter to understand who you are and what you are and what you stand for and what, what you represent almost, you know, in tribute to going back to your mother, right? What she was able to do, what your father was able to do in helping support you in growing up, you're obviously setting that same type of, of example for your daughter, which is just so, um, so heartwarming for sure. Well, we hope so. Um, you know, look, we're human beings. We're we have our fallacies, we have our faults, uh, we have our vulnerabilities. But again, if your intentions are pure and honorable, the results are secondary. They're better. Everybody likes a win more than a loss. Yeah, but for if you sure. Give it everything you have, they're, you know, you're measured on your deeds and your intentions. Actually, you're measured on your intentions and your deeds. Yeah. And then, Jerry, when I, when I was interviewing uh, Horst Schultz and also Simon Cooper, um, I, I, I did talk to them a little bit about self-awareness and I said, I asked them each and I'd like to ask you the same thing um, throughout your career and where you are now, is there one thing that you know that you're per particularly not necessarily good at or that you don't like and how did you overcome having perhaps not necessarily a fault, but perhaps not a strength? Yeah, um, I think I determined uh, young that I was not the smartest kid in the room. Um, and I think I had a realization, maybe a blessing, in fact, that uh, it, it occurred to me very early that there would always be people smarter than me. I couldn't control that. Uh, there would always be people more beautiful than me. 
I couldn't control that. Um, there would be people that were wealthier than me. I couldn't control that. But I could control my behavior. I could control my work ethic. I could control my preparation and my tenacity. Now, there is a Japanese proverb that I love, and that is get knocked down six times, get up seven. So I learned that early. So one thing that I realized is that if I wasn't this or wasn't that, I had to compensate for that by working harder and being more sincere or trying in a human way to be more sincere than the next guy. Because what I, what I say to young people, yeah. and my daughter knows this implicitly, is you're not going to win an Olympic gold medal without talent. You have to get on a team and you have to win it. But what you're going to find that talent, especially for people who have won two Olympic gold medals, it's not just about talent. You have to do the reps and the prep and you have to put the time in. And then generally what's, what works for people who have won more than one Olympic gold medal or championships in any metaphor that one wants to use, the sport metaphors are a little bit easier, is that generally those who succeed want it more than anyone else. They want it. So you got to go out there and you got to put a pound of passion into everything. And you got to outwork, out hustle, out think, because that's the way you get to the front of the line. And I like being in the front of the line. Now, there's a difference. There are some people who feel that their A in their class is accentuated by everybody getting a B or C. I respectfully disagree with that point of view. I let everybody in my class know I'm going for the A. But I want you all to get an A because there's a camaraderie in a community of excellence. And it's lonely to be the only one at the top. And that's why I don't like doggy, doggy, dog, you know. So uh, it, it occurred to me that I would have to out prep, out prepare, out work, out study, out hustle. And that turned out to be a fairly good formula uh, years following. Yeah. And what in Jerry, this is the first time and I've interviewed some incredible leaders. This is the first time that I've ever heard someone talking about. Yes, we've heard people talking about working harder. But you also had reference being more sincere. And I think that that probably really helps to define you. Yes, you were there are going to be smarter people in the room, as you mentioned, but you're going to out prep out hustle outwork and you're going to be more sincere can you talk a little bit more about your sincerity because you have a kind heart without a doubt can you talk about how sincerity has helped you in your career yeah you know there's there's two aspects to that you know there's there's an old story that in the, in the, in the path of life you walk down the road now whatever you want to call god god jesus allah Buddha, Ja, doesn't matter. You're going to walk down the road and you're going to come off a victory and the divine is going to appear when you're feeling hubris and say, my son, my daughter, how are you? If you let your hubris get the best of you, you're going to say to the divine, I got it from here, don't worry. Mm -hmm. And you know what the divine is going to say to you? Great, see you down the road. Now, <clears throat> what happens is that in the path of life, 
You have to count your blessings. You have to know that you don't go alone. That you that the same people you meet on the way up are the same people you meet on the way down. And you want to see them on the way up. And you want to see them on the way down. Because that's what community is. That's what camaraderie is. And you want to never lose your humanity and your touch to them because it's a village. Now, what happens is, to be sincere, maybe some people would even call it likable. Because when you hit a bump, they will either help you or at the very least will give you something that's in short supply these days, which is benefited of doubt. And they will say, you know, that person's well-intended. That person tries hard. Maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt. I would suggest this is a very good principle yeah. because humility may not be expeditious in the short point, mm-hmm. but it certainly outpaces uh, hubris. Yes. Oh, brilliant. And what, when I was leading part of a global sales team for Ritz Carlton, we would always say, seek to understand without judgment, right? So give people the benefit of the doubt. And there's a, another saying by um, a psychologist that talks about, I seek your greatest good. I mean, you no harm. And if we can all live like that, boy, doesn't it make it a better world? Well, and indeed, you know, and then now if you look at 1962, uh, you know, next year, uh, 2022, you'll have the 60th anniversary of Four Seasons Hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, the great Isidore Sharp, turn 90 this October, one of my mentors, one of the great human beings and innkeepers. Mm-hmm. And if you get sophisticated with him, and he's a pretty sophisticated guy, and you say to him, you know, Izzy, arguably 100 more hotels, you've got the most luxurious, best cultured company in the world. What, what was your methodology? What was your sophistication? What was your strategy? Mm-hmm. He will say to you, don't overthink it. Everything in Four Seasons revolves around the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. But then he'll give a caveat and said, I never worried about my guest. I worry about every single person who works at Four Seasons and they worry about my guest because I can't possibly have that interaction with them. They do. So if they're, if they're treated with dignity and respect, that self-esteem will, will uh, result in sustainable excellence, and that will drive the institutionalization of a culture where the culture can perpetuate itself on its own uh, momentum. And that, that's what transcends one person. And that's why Walt Disney, Cesar Ritz, Isidore Sharp, Horst Schultze, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen, nobody knows that better than you. I wish I wrote that when I was 15 instead of Horst. <laughs> But horse was much more sophisticated than me. <laughs> and when we're talking about culture, and uh, and thank you for again such amazing, amazing bits of information. I know that our our listeners are taking notes furiously because they are learning from certainly one of the best, Jerry. As you referenced culture, what is your advice for organizations as we come out of the pandemic that perhaps have either lost their way with regard to culture or individuals have been working remote and not necessarily in the hotel world, but just in the corporate environment. And they maybe never shared an office with a colleague, um, yet they're now expected to understand what the culture is. Any advice for organizations on what they can do to kind of continue 
or start or rebuild the culture? Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, there's a basic prerequisite answer. And then there's two nuances that directly relate to COVID. Mm -hmm. Because this is an extraordinary set of circumstances that we globally have never faced before. You know, innkeepers, um, we've had plane crashes, we've had uh, 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 disease on ships, we've had uh, car crashes, we've had hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires. And, and we've always overcome all of that. But we've never really, um, as a global community, uh, sustained a global pandemic. So here's what happens coming out of COVID. Mm -hmm. We have to go back to basics. And that is that what joins us together is humanity. People travel for connection. They travel to interact, as my friend, the great musician Sting says. We may not share the same ideology, but we all share the same biology. Well, people need to interact. They need to embrace. They need to share. They need to encounter. So that's why tourism went from nothing to 11 almost 11% of global GDP. Almost every sophisticated country in the world now has a ministry of tourism. Okay, so we have to go back to basics to understand that we are human and we have to support development of people. The only way you support development of people is by instilling the basic fundamentals of self-esteem, dignity, and respect. Mm -hmm. And you have, to, you have to continually say, as my beloved friend Oprah Winfrey says, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say matter? You can't look through people. You have to look at people. You have to listen. And that, that is particularly true of colleagues. Now, the nuance of COVID mm -hmm. is that we have to understand that people will face isolation now. So leadership in all industries now have to dig back down and develop another, another gear of patience to say, wait a minute, this is fairly extraordinary. And then as it relates to tourism, we're gonna need a, a whole new sensitivity training because with people cooped up, they're gonna be more wired, they're gonna be more uptight. And then in the industry where people are gonna have big rate hikes now you, in the restoration of RevPAR, it's not gonna be restoration of RevPAR on the average rate side. The, the, the restoration of RevPAR will come on occupancy. So everybody's gonna move prices up and people are not gonna mind paying more money because they're gonna understand that it's worth it rather than be cooped up. However, mm -hmm. if they don't get what they paid for, you're gonna see much more problems. And now uh, I was just speaking to our great friend, Peter Greenberg the other day mm -hmm. and the, the airline, um, the association of, of flight attendants um, in just the month of May, there were 3,000 incidents globally on planes yeah. where people needed to call a supervisor or, or a, um, a policing agency to intervene on fights. Now, why is that? Well, a lot of societies are more polarized now. And on top of that, people are uptight, they're frightened, they're disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're gonna, we have to go back to the golden rule. But all leadership now has to execute greater patience to understand that people may not be on terra firma. Mm -hmm. And then we have to be very, very sympathetic to those guests now as they emerge and you get life to come back to some degree of normality. Right, 
Right. No. And what what amazing answers, uh, Jerry. And I was with a, a hotel friend of mine from a resort and um, he was saying we, we normally have 120 staff to take care, employees to take care of a busy weekend. And we're running 97 percent occupancy. And guess what? We only had 30 because yeah. we, we, we right. We lost our labor. They moved out of the area. They moved into different industries, whatever the case is. So the your crisis. point. Yeah, yeah. So your whole point about sensitivity training is so it's simple, but so brilliant that we need to make sure that all of our employees in our industry are aware. And then we need to make sure that we're communicating properly with our guests and with our customers to make sure that they're patient with us. They also need to be patient and flexible with us in return. Do you, do you agree? I totally agree. And you see, what happens is that uh, we're, we're not inviting abuse but what happens is in sensitivity training, and nobody better than you, Paul, on this, but you know, what you have to do is you have to say, excuse me, I'm sorry you're upset. I will help you with this, but you, you must speak in a tone of voice. Otherwise, we can't have this conversation. So that's got to be done very gently because it's a fine line. Yes. But just because someone's a little upset, they can't, they can't, uh, you know, they can't disrespect you. So... Right. So this is all part of, and by the way, all, even all the great luxury companies, they're going to have to step up their sensitivity on frontline employees, mm -hmm. frontline staff, because they're the ones that are going to be uh, uh, facing uh, this behavior until it levels out. Yeah, yeah. And there was even an article talking about, um, you were referencing, you know, the number of incidents, fights, well, the, the number of complaints from an airline perspective, I just read an article was, you know, astronomical, the increase in complaints that they had to their corporate office for customer service, it was just outrageous. And sadly, if, if, if we can't come up with resolutions for it, if the sensitivity training, which I believe will definitely help, we don't want to lose more people out of our lovely industry, we want to attract people into our industry. Right. And then, you know, the other thing, which is a bit controversial, but I have no problem doing it. And that is that there's a, no, there's a great number of CEOs in the service business that should be ashamed of themselves. And they're not necessarily hotel CEOs, but there are other aspects of tourism where the CEOs are, are, are separated from their staff, never interact with them, never talk with them. I mean, I was with a, a CEO of a major American airline, not American airlines, but mm -hmm. a major American airlines whose service is shocking, you know, mm -hmm. and he said, there's nothing I can do about it. I don't control the labor unions. I don't control this. Yeah. Well, no one has seen you in five years. So what kind of leader are you? So, you know, the leadership has got to take their responsibility too to be out there and be supportive of the teams and do what you expect your teams to do. Right, exactly. And I just heard a story the other day from my friend, Larry Golko in Boston that said the CEO of Delta would ride in the middle seat in the back of the plane next to the laboratories because he wanted to ex he wanted to experience what other guests were experiencing and good man yeah and he was you know sitting right next to a guest a traveler and you know the welcome video comes on and the gentleman next to him said isn't that you he's just like yeah it was like what are you doing back here and he said i want to experience i want to be able to get, have our company get better as a result of experiencing what you as a traveler experiences. And then at, at talking about Horst Schultz, I asked him the question. I said, can you tell me about the best service experience you've ever had? 
in from a hotel perspective and horse very kindly says it's not a fair question bart I, I appreciate what you're trying to ask but it's not a fair question because every hotel room that i've ever been in smells like fresh paint and even his wife right had recognized that every time we come into a hotel it smells like fresh paint he said it's not i'm not typical of the service that a guest would receive and i thought that that was such a a, a lovely fair humbling answer um, Jerry, I have, two, I have two additional questions for you. And again, I'm so grateful of your time. Um, as you are, um, you know, doing additional research and going to 160 countries and with your career, was it difficult for you to have a work-life balance? Yeah, that's the one thing that uh, uh, all service, um, that's the difficult thing. And that's the one thing I try to influence uh, young people now. And that is that my generation we neglected our families and um, that's not right. Now, uh, ambition or whatever, taking them for granted, even if they say, I love you, it's not fair. There has to be a work balance. You have to have a, an ability to recharge your batteries. Um, you know, one of the most uh, misunderstood words, not that it's misunderstood, people don't focus on it. But one of the greatest words in the English language is the word inspiration. Well, what, what actually is inspiration? Well, Asian, I-O-N, is the process of. Well, spirit is the middle and in. It's not outspiration, it's inspiration. Now, inspiration is the process in which you restore or rejuvenate or replenish your spirit in which you can go out and serve. So. You know, you could take a metaphor of these uh, fun uh, water guns that you have in the swimming pool and you pump it up, pump it up. Then, you you know, you shoot your dad and then you laugh and you put it back in the water and you pump it up, pump it up. Well, in order to serve or in order to create, in order to create or serve, you have to pump it up, shoot, put it back in, pump it up. So work balance mm -hmm. and being around people you love, people you admire, people who, who inspire you. Mm -hmm. That allows you to go back and serve again and again and again, but you have to have that process. If you don't, you could burn out or burn the people uh, that care for you out. And I would suggest that's not healthy. No. So getting re-energized by taking breaks or being with people that motivate you, inspire you, that provide maybe a balance that perhaps even force you to do things to take care of yourself because you know that is critically important um so two, two last questions jerry can you talk a little bit you know you are such the ambassador for hospitality and for travel um and to use your quote you help to bring joy and festivities and happiness to those that travel through the nobility of thinking and through the nobility of doing which aligns perfectly with my whole approach and name of the company about most people don't, right? The nobility of doing. Can you talk a little bit about what you are doing, what your project is right now with um, uh, Daria Gate Development Authority? Because you are doing some incredible things to bring jobs and energy and tranquility to not only employees, but also to future travelers. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what that project is. And then I want to end the conversation talking about some of the people that you have referenced even just during this phone on uh, during this call on how they have influenced you. So if you can tell us a little bit first about 
um, your, your current work and your current project as CEO of Daria Gate Development Authority. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, you know, as part of my DNA, um, and you heard it in my uh, TED talk that you were thoughtful enough to listen to, I, I use a, a saying that there's two words in Latin that trouble me. And uh, I hope they trouble who's listening. And that is whoever came up with the word subservient, um, I'd like to meet that person because they don't live in my world. In my world, service is noble. You are not less than someone because you serve them. Uh, Shakespeare, one of the greatest writers of our time, Juliet says to Romeo, the more I give to thee, the more I have. Subordinate, who came up with that one? Because you work with people that are under you? Come on, boring, outdated, not the word. Now, so service is noble. The second thing is that there's very few industries in the world that are more ambassadorial, more inclusive than hospitality, than tourism, where you welcome people. And in a polarized world where people have shut off their antennas to even disagreement, well, you can disagree, but whatever happened to civility? So, you know, Oprah will talk about that all the time. Let us be in a position where we put ourselves in someone else's shoes or where we can listen to someone's point of view, even if we don't agree with it. That's one of the great things about tourism. Now, in the 238 countries, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, G20, wasn't open for tourism for 90 years. Well, that's a problem in my book because then you perpetuate a stereotype where media hasn't been able to come to the kingdom and they're allowed to perpetuate a stereotype, which I would suggest is boring, that the kingdom is just deserts and camels or that the, that, that the people are mean and they're not approachable when there's, some of the Saudis are the loveliest, very warm-hearted, very generous people. So. When the custodian of the two Olimas and our dynamic crown prince allowed the kingdom to be open for tourism, and they asked me to come and make Derea the birthplace of the Saudi Peninsula, uh, the birthplace of the Arabian Peninsula, the birthplace of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the actual birthplace, the home, the ancestral home of one family of 130 years, the House of Al Saud, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I said, where do I sign that one? You know, because to at this particular point, 54 years in, uh, since 1967, to be able to serve and reverse uh, stigmatisms that are not uh, no longer um, healthy or earned, and then to have the ability to incubate and empower a young, dynamic, highly educated workforce for me is a gift. And uh, that's why I'm grateful uh, to the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Salman, and to uh, our wonderful crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, for giving me the uh, honor to work at today. Amazing, amazing. And to quote your mother, <laughs> Jerry, you're not settled. <laughs> right? You're well, you know, settled. I gotta get I gotta get uh, I gotta get I gotta get ready because, uh, you know, uh, the crown prince has asked me to see this food in which I have an intention. But then, Bart, you know, uh, with your skills and mine, you know, maybe we can get Chelsea to come with us and, uh, and you know, and, and then we'll start working about how we get people to the moon. 
I would be thrilled. You're giving me goosebumps even by mentioning my name into that category. So yes. And then Jerry, last question I want to ask you. And again, this has just been so fascinating. As I'm speaking with you, I am taking notes. I am learning. It's giving me new ideas on how I can improve my life, what I can do differently to help others, what I can continue to do that most people are not doing. But, you know, you referenced something about in the beginning of the call, talking about not being the, the smartest person always. Okay, so you have quoted everything from, you know, Shakespeare to Oprah to Nelson Mandela to Sting. Um, you are quite the intelligent gentleman. Um, and it has just been incredible. Along those lines of all of the incredible people that you have met, uh, you know, your, your, your interaction with different celebrities, different types of royalty, the crown prince, Nelson Mandela. Is there any, and this is a really difficult question, and I'm sorry to end with this. Is there, is there any types of sayings or philosophy that of all the people that you've met, this one little statement really, really stayed with me and has influenced my life. Anything just immediately come to mind? Yeah, I, 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 it's one of my themes. Service is noble. Giving, sharing is noble. It's sharing is the fabric and the DNA of humanity. So let us go out. Some of us, look, I, I, I'm not the guy. I don't have the courage and I admire all these nurses and all these frontline people during COVID. Uh, I, I, these people that take care of pediatric cancer. I, I, I can't do that. I wasn't built for that. Mm -hmm. So all people are my heroes, right? But I can make people feel, look, here's the bottom line for me. Yeah. Go out and research and source the best ingredients to bake a cake. Take the time and bake the cake beautifully. Cut the cake in eight equal pieces, but then make everybody believe they got the biggest piece of cake. Yeah. That's the art of hospitality. Yeah. That's the art of hospitality. And with that, uh, what great imagery making people feel like they have the largest piece of cake and probably the best piece of cake. Jerry, I think that is an outstanding way to end this podcast. Cannot thank you enough. Um, thank, you, a pleasure. thank you for everything you do. No, everybody, yep. you know, you, you see the goodness in everybody. That's, that's a good, good, good trait. It's a good thing. So thank you. No, well, and that's what I hope to continue to do. And you certainly inspired me, Jerry Inzarello. CEO of Daria Gate Development Authority, Forbes Only Travel one Guide. Only Only come visit us in the kingdom. Only I, one would, I, I would love to. Some of my most memorable moments, and, I, and I've never been to the kingdom yet, but some of my most memorable travel has been um, interacting and meeting with individuals in Doha, in Qatar. Uh, Cutter, I spent um, over a week there um, in just, I mean, amazing culture, amazing people. And when you talk about, um, if I say thank you, Jerry, what do you say? You mean shukran? 
no, no. What do you? I I, I read this about. Oh, you. Yeah, you say you're welcome. Of yeah. course. Yeah, you are welcome. That's the that's the saying of hospitality. Yeah. you are welcome. You are welcome. I was waiting to be able to use that toward the end because, again, I've never heard someone just reference it. It's not just about a quick response. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, sure. No, yeah, no problem. You are welcome. You right? are welcomed. So. Jerry, I am going to say you are welcomed and I am so grateful. Jerry Inzarello, my fingers are crossed. I did vote for you for the Hoteliers 2021 Corporate Hotel Hotelier of the World nominee. So, um, and I know that, that 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 is an honor to be nominated. I know you're not always about winning things, but you have a, a brand new um, fan and friend in me. So Jerry, cannot thank you enough. Thanks very much, Bart. See you soon. Okay. God bless everyone. Thank you. Only one today. <laughs> <laughs>